So I'd like to start off with something that Gio said last week. He stated that this wasn't something that happened to the Israelites overnight. The Israelites had been walking away from God for almost 500 years. Over time, they placed things, idols, over their relationship with God. And, you know, we often hear that people will say, oh, well, there's two gods of the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was one of war and judgment and punishment. Yet the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness. You know, Scripture says that our God is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 states, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look how long our Lord was patient, waiting for his people to turn from their wicked ways and come back to him. The God that brought them out of Egypt, that watched over them, that provided for them, that protected them, that gave them the promised land, gave them victory after victory when they probably shouldn't have been winning a bunch of these. And yet how quickly his people forgot. How quickly we forget. You know, we can get caught up in our day-to-day activities of making a living. And first, God kind of, he gets put on a back burner. Then there's that overtime shift that comes up at work on Sunday. Then the prospect of promotion and moving up the corporate ladder and success by man's standard as the world pulls us farther and farther away with spending time with God. And the important shifts from spending that time in his word to spending time away from our family, away from church, away from Jesus. But like Gio stated, It doesn't just happen overnight. You know, Satan uses the old uh, frog in a boiling pot technique. He knows it works. You see, if you try to put a a frog into a uh, pot of hot water, the frog is going to jump out. But if you place him in there and then slowly turn up the temperature bit by bit, little by little, you will eventually boil him alive. And that's what the enemy does with us. He doesn't come to you and say, hey, how would you like to be face down in the gutter, lying in a puddle of your own vomit, addicted to drugs, strung out, homeless, with no real prospect for a future? See, the enemy is crafty in his ways. From the very beginning, he showed us his stripes. Genesis 3.1 states, now the serpent, or Satan, was more cunning than any other beast of the field, which the Lord had made. Hey, young man. Hey, lady. You want to have a hit off of this marijuana cigarette? One toke isn't going to kill you. Hey, it's personal use. It's legal in California. It's an herb. Even in Genesis, did God not state, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed from which is on the face of the earth. You see, you have to do that when Satan speaks because of the, the forked tongue, right? <laughs> See, Satan will twist things. He will deceive us, for he is the father of all lies and will walk farther and farther away from God until you're very nearer and nearer to selling your soul to him. 
As we sit here and judge Israel in this chapter, the main focus of this book in Ezekiel, let us not be so quick to judge. For we see how easily we all fall short. And that Satan is alive and, dare I say, thriving in our country today. Let us also not be too quick to judge our Lord. Now, what do you mean by that, Adam? Well, I think we can have a tendency to go ahead and look at God and the judgments that he hands out, the anger that he pours out, and we think, wow, that was kind of harsh. But is it? God was long-suffering, giving the Jewish people almost 500 years to turn back to him. And they didn't. Sometimes, God lets us get to the very bottom of the pit that we ourselves are digging. We come to the end of our rope. And then we figure out, oh, we need to look up. Look up and then go ahead and drop down on our knees, repent, and realize that it was him all along. We're going to see in today's chapter in Ezekiel we will be told by God, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you. Precious people, there is a breaking point with God. He will allow things to happen in our lives. There are consequences for our behaviors. Just like the Jewish people, we can have anger poured out upon us as we continue to walk farther and farther away from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I believe the majority of this is going to happen after we leave the earth, after we've been raptured. But folks, it's going to get worse until that day. Scripture says that there will be earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars. Are we there yet? We're pretty close. And I believe that we're seeing the birthing pangs and the end is imminent. But not yet. Not yet. So tonight, we're going to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 7. See what God will tell Ezekiel to prophecy to the Jewish people, which of course, if God said it, we believe it. End of story. The title for tonight's message, Judgment is Near. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we look around and we see the darkness of this age. And we know that time is short. The enemy knows that time is short. And Lord, that's why I believe more than ever, his plan is being revealed and acted out in the open. He's not even trying to disguise it anymore. And yet still, Lord, there are so many that would look to the ways of the world, the things, their lusts, their pleasures, and go after those things. And Lord, I pray that you would protect each and every one of us, that we would never come to a place in our lives where God has given us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn back to him, and we just continue walking away. God, be with us this night. As we delve into your word, I pray, Lord, etch your scripture upon our hearts. And Lord, if there's anything of man, I pray fall upon deaf ears. So Lord, know how much we love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So open up in your Bibles to the seventh chapter in the book of Ezekiel. We'll be starting in verse one. If there's anybody here who needs a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers will get you one. Starting in verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, we don't know exactly how the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. He doesn't speak as he did in Ezekiel chapter one, verse one. 
Now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chibar, that the heavens were opened up and I saw visions of God. So if the heavens were not opened up as it was in verse 1, did God then speak to Ezekiel directly in a loud and audible voice? We've seen that before. If you remember when we went through the Mount of Transfiguration on Sunday, in Luke chapter 9, verse 34, it states, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. We don't see a cloud here, or at least Ezekiel doesn't describe one in that way. But we do know that God can speak to us audibly. God can also speak to us through prayer. Have you ever had a prayer answered in such a way that God gave you a peace that surpasses all understanding and you just knew it was from him? So God can speak to us through our prayers. God can also speak to us through our friends and our family, godly friends, godly family, that There it is. We know they're walking with him. And as such, they can guide and give us advice. And we can trust because we know their character and their walk with God. God can also speak to us through his word. And I'm sure this has also happened to each and every one of you. You come in on a Sunday morning, you sit down, and the message is exactly the problem that you're dealing with. It's exactly the message that you needed to hear specifically on that day. Has that happened to you? Yeah, it's happened to me too. Although we don't get specifics on how the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, we know that God tells him what to say. Continuing, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. So this is actually a question that came up in our small groups, and I think it bears explaining. We see Ezekiel consistently being referred to as a son of man. As we're going through the book of Luke on Sundays, we saw in our last teaching, Luke 12, verse 8, where it says, Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, will also confess before the angels of God. As Jesus calls himself the son of man, is God then, in a sense, calling or comparing Ezekiel with his only begotten son, Jesus? No. First, let's take a look at Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in Matthew 16, 27, Mark 14, 20, 21, Luke 7, 37, 34, and John 3, 13. Jesus uses this title because it specifically links him to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It was a passage that described the coming Messiah. Let's take a look at that. Therefore, before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereignty, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
You see, the teachers of the law during that time, they, uh, they would have known, they would have understood Jesus' meaning when he applied the title Son of Man to himself. Jesus' uses the, uh, use of this phrase also points him to being part of the Godhead as well as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that we just read. Now, also, only in the, not only in the Gospels do we find the term Son of Man associated uh, within, uh, or within this, we find the definite article, the Son of Man. Jesus always calls himself the Son of Man, as in there's only one. Using the definite article, Jesus contrasts himself with other personalities in the Bible as associated with the same. So in other words, Ezekiel is never called the Son of Man. He is always just a Son of Man, as in one among many. So lastly, son of man is a rather common term as you read through the Bible, and it simply means man. It emphasizes the humanity of a person. In the case of Ezekiel, who's often referred to as son of man, we see this in Ezekiel 2, 1, 3, 1, 4, 1, and 5, 1. I believe God probably chose this manner to point out the contrast between the human condition of Ezekiel and to point out the majesty of God. In the first chapter of the book, remember Ezekiel had that vision and had God's glory. We see the scene of the wheels with eyes on it. We see the fire. We see uh, the storms and the strange angelic creatures. In the first, of, uh, first verse of that next chapter, as Ezekiel address, excuse me, God addresses Ezekiel as son of man. So the prophet could not help but realize his own humanity and frailty and limitations in the presence of the glory of God. God is God, and Ezekiel is just a son of man. Now, in Jesus' case, the title, The Son of Man, also highlights his humanity as Christ. He was all man and all God, right? Yes. The difference is that the, the Son of Man, that is, he is the epitome of humanity. Jesus is the sinless one, humanity perfected, the one who finally restores God and man. He's never just a Son of Man. So I hope that that cleared that up. Verse 2, continuing there. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. The people will be judged according to their ways. That is, more appropriately, they would bring judgment upon themselves. I'd like to expound on that a little bit. Because a lot of times when we hear the word judgment, I believe often we think of that final judgment. When we think of uh, the fact that every one of us will be judged. Now, as Christians, not in that eternal sense. However, there will be that separation of the sheep and the goats. Only two places that you're going to end up after that heaven or hell. That is the second death. Have you ever heard the argument, why should I believe in a God who would damn someone to hell? That doesn't sound like a loving God, does it? You know, let me be very clear on this. The only way to get to hell is to choose it. 
While we're here on earth, God has given each and every one of us free will. We can either choose to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior or reject him. But we will never be forced by God. That's the free will of God. But if we refuse the free gift, and I say free gift in the sense that we did nothing to earn it, but it cost God his only begotten son. But if we refuse that gift of salvation, then we choose our eternal damnation. The ultimately, and excuse me, and ultimately we're cast into the lake of fire. That's that second death, which we as Christians will never taste. Now, it's crazy to think that after the millennium, after a thousand years of peace, with Jesus ruling and reigning on this earth, that when Satan is loosed one more time, people will still choose the devil. You know, I had heard a, uh, a radio program one time, and it was uh, the two guests on it was a pastor and an atheist. So they were having this debate and going back and forth, and quite honestly, the atheist was beating up on this pastor pretty bad. Not that he wasn't holding his own, but he was just kind of vicious in everything that he said. And as they were starting to wrap up the show, the pastor said this, you guys have beat up on me enough. You say we don't have a loving God, if someone has been trying to get away from God their entire lives, then in essence, if they go to hell, God just gave them exactly what they wanted. Mic drop. <laughs> Verse four. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. To an end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. The doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near and not of rejoicing in the mountains. If you remember last week, Geo talked about that and it was specifically, right, dealing with the mountains. Now God turns his wrath onto all the rest of Israel. Now upon you, I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. Now, I like the King James Version. And ye shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. <laughs> Sometimes I wish we would still talk like that. Back, you warthog with the face of a baboon. Or shall I be forced to smiteth thee? <laughs> I digress. Throughout scripture, we see the many names of God that are revealed. In Genesis 22:14, we see Jehovah Jireh, or Lord is our provider. In Exodus 17, 15, we see Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner or our covering. In Judges 6, 24, we see Jehovah Shalom, God is our peace. And also, you've heard a lot of times when I pray for sick people or those that are injured, that I will make that appeal to Jehovah Rapha, in other words, Lord, the healer. We like those names, but here we see He's Jehovah Makkah, the Lord who strikes or smites, because God is not only our provider, he's also 
a smiter. And when we come to the Lord, we don't get to pick and choose. We get the whole package. We can't just say, oh, I really like Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Shalom, but I'm not too interested in that Jehovah Maka guy. <laughs> now, that's not the way it works. When we say, I'll take Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Shalom, right? You are my God, we're saying in essence. And we accept him in totality. You are my Lord and Savior when we accept Jesus into our hearts. Again, we get all of him. We love the Savior part. We don't want to go to hell. But not always the Lord part where we have to be obedient. God is indeed the God who smites. But instead of smiting you and me the way we deserve to be, he smote his own son on a hill called Calvary. Isaiah 53, verse 10 states, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Jesus. He had put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Our glorious, amazing, powerful Father will not turn a blind eye to sin. He is Jehovah Maka but he is also the one who loves you and me so intently that he provided a way so that we would not be struck or smited eternally. Jesus took our place. Therefore, if we walk away from the one who gave everything to die in our place, we deserve to be smitten eternally. Verse 10. Behold the day, behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude. None of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. But let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So if you remember, according to the law in Leviticus, their lands, their properties were returned Every 50 years. We see this in Leviticus 25, verse 13. In the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his, return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So in other words, if hard times fell on you, you could go ahead and sell your property, but you made an agreement with that neighbor or whoever it was that you were selling it to, whoever was purchasing it, that in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, it would go back to your family. But here in Ezekiel's day, however, this would not matter since the rightful owner would likely have been killed by famine, sword, pestilence in Judah, 
or held captive in Babylon well past the year of Jubilee. Remember, they were in captivity for over 70 years. For 70 years. God's going to get his one way or another. Verse 14. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is on their, all their multitude. The sword is outside and the pestilence and famine within. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword. And whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains. Like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. So in essence, a call to defend the cities, it would have been useless. Remember, this isn't just foreign invaders, but an enemy that has been moved by the hand of God himself. What do you think the, really the success of the Israelites would have been had they tried to fight back? Verse 17. Every hand will be feeble and every knee will be as weak as water. So in other words, they had water on their knees. That's as good as it gets, people. I'm sorry. <laughs> Verse 18. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face. Baldness on their heads. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls, nor fill their stomachs, because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. So gold and silver that God's people had sacrificed their children to obtain, the gold and silver that they had ignored the Sabbath in order to work on was now worthless. You know, I'm reminded of a scene from Titanic where the unsinkable ship is starting to lisp. It's starting to go under. And you have one of the rich men, the well-to-do characters, attempt to pay off one of the stewards in order to get into a lifeboat. And he takes it and he throws the money back at him. What was the worth of some paper with dead presidents on it going to do in the pocket of someone who is about to die drowning? See, we see the same thing here. All the gold and silver was not going to buy their safety or their protection. Verse 20. As for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made it the um, images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuge to them. I will give as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoils, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. At one time, the temple was the most beautiful building of the people of God. But its beauty, it says, would be far less ruined by the invading Babylonian armies than by the idols that were placed there by their own hand. We see a reference to this in 2 Chronicles 36, 14. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Continuing in verse 23. Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. Therefore, 
I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priests and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hand of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. My people insisted on having their own way, the Lord declares. But when I judge them accordingly, they will know that I am the Lord. Now, three things really stand out as we close in this passage. The first was the absolute integrity of God's message. The integrity of God's message. Do you want to know truth? It's right here. You see, there are many different versions of God's word, but the integrity is there. When you can go back to Israel, look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, Thousands of years before these were written. And guess what? You compare your Bible today and it is still word for word. That's the integrity of God's word. You see, there's so many other religions that have to go back to their holy documents, their holy books, and revise them because, you know what? Those predictions, those prophecies didn't quite come true when they said they were going to. That's not our God. Our God is perfect and we can trust in his integrity. Now, we have a tendency to want to be liked. And I spoke about this on Sunday, how Jesus was the complete opposite, declaring truth, calling out the Pharisees on their sin. But unlike us, God is committed to declaring truth. He knows that sin must be judged or it will bring judgment. One of the major points of the conversation, excuse me, the, the conversion or coming to Christ is for a person to realize that they are a sinner. If they don't realize that, they'll walk away from the one who has made sin for him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you thought it was just a Chris Tomlin song. <laughs> You see, this is why the Old Testament is so important. It's the schoolmaster for us to teach us that we might go ahead and try to call perversions or fetishes or individual choice that are actually sins. Galatians 3.24 states, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The next thing I see is the amazing flexibility of God's method. The flexibility of God's method. In Ezekiel, he communicates through drama, poetry, art, foot stomping, and hand clapping. Whatever it takes to communicate, God will use. Therefore, the next time when you have one of my messages that you think is just a little bit bizarre in my illustrations that I make all of you do, think of Ezekiel. Because God will sometimes use methods that seem shocking to a congregation in order to reach a world that no longer listens to traditional means. Finally, I see the expendability of God's men. The expendability of God's men. Okay, so what do I mean by this? 
our God has a work to do in each and every one of us. And he'll use those who are willing to say, here I am, send me. But it's not always going to be easy. God might say to you, the way I will use you is to be a model to this community of how a man dies from cancer while keeping his faith intact. God might say to you, I'm going to let you get hit by a drunk driver on your motorcycle, come within inches of death, to bring the church a reminder of the importance of family and worshiping him. God might call some of you into the ministry, and you'll have a church that will grow to the grand number of seven. And nothing more. Where you will go ahead and show that God's ministry, that you will still be faithful with what he has given to you, even though there's not the outward results. He might give you a song to sing, but nobody comes to you with a record contract. Surely Ezekiel did not enjoy all of his assignments. Remember lying on one side for 390 days and then the other for 40, right? But do you think Ezekiel was up in heaven saying, I was so exploited, I can't believe God made me do those things. I don't. I think when he heard, well done, good and faithful servant, it made it all worthwhile. See, in heaven, there are rewards, there are blessings, there's joy, there's fulfillment that we can't even possibly begin to imagine. And like Ezekiel, I believe we'll say, thank you, thank you, Lord, for letting me suffer, for not allowing me to see my name up in lights we're going through hard times because now it all makes sense and I'm honored. If it takes us to go through hard times to allow God to do his work, then let it be so. But just remember, God does not exist to make us comfortable, but he does have a job to do through us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we come to you as imperfect beings. We come to you as individuals that recognize, Lord, there's still a good work for you to do inside of each and every one of us. And God, I pray that we would be open and receptible to what it is that you would have us to do. Lord, you ask Ezekiel to do some pretty amazing things, some pretty off-the-wall things that we may not always understand. Well, God, you may ask us to do things that we may not understand either. But I pray that we would be obedient, that we would listen to your voice, to your word, Lord, and that you would answer those prayers. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son that you gave and died on the cross for us. Thank you that we are not the ones who are smited, but instead, you gave us that substitute in your only begotten son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.